We'll read uh, from Mark chapter six, first 13 verses in a minute. But we're in this series, this one of four accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, this fastest-paced account, and Jesus has been ministering around the Sea of Galilee, hopping in a boat to go from one port town to the other. This morning, uh, in this passage this morning, he travels home for the first time in Mark's gospel, home where everybody knows his name, where it's his tribe, his people, except for Jesus, there's no welcome committee. Mark chapter 6, listen carefully. These are God's words. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his, home, in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. This morning I especially feel inadequate to bring the word before your people, but that's no matter because you use jars of clay to possess treasure, especially your Holy Spirit. You use crooked sticks to strike straight blows. Your power is made perfect in weakness. And so thank you, Lord, for those reminders. For me, for us. Whether this word, whether my words are clear or not, speak, O Lord, by the power of that same Spirit, that Jesus would be exalted. Amen. We start with home field disadvantage. Nazareth was a town uh, about 25 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee in the foothills. And just as Mark chapter 1 describes, when Jesus entered Capernaum on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath and he taught. The people in chapter 1, this is the first ministry scene we get in Mark's gospel, they were amazed because Jesus taught as one having authority. That was something new. And then from Mark chapter 1 through our text this morning, Jesus has only proceeded to demonstrate his authoritative words by backing them up with authoritative actions. 
He has cast out demons and evil spirits. He has demonstrated his authority over sickness and disease and even birth defects. He has um, commanded nature to cease, be still, and in a moment, everything obeys. In last week's passage, he even raises the dead. He has authority over life itself. But the Nazarenes have a different reaction. Still uh, an element of amazement, but also mixed with that plenty of disbelief and scoffing, even offense. What's this wisdom that's been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? That's not so much an insult as it is a comment that they know who he is. They know who his family is. They know where he's come from. They grew up with him. Who is this guy, not formally educated like uh, any of us, and who is he to come into the synagogue and pronounce these things with this kind of authority? On two different trips to Buenos Aires, I had the privilege of partnering with a local church in town, and uh, during the 10 days of these two trips uh, each, we traveled to the slums of Buenos Aires, unbelievable poverty. They called it the shanty towns. People in these, uh, people permanently lived in these shelters made out of cardboard and scraps of tarps strung together. If they were really good at scavenging, they had maybe one wall, maybe a roof with pieces of sheet metal. It's a place with very little hope. There's no running water. Electricity is these dangerously strung um, extension cords all over the place. And the toilet is basically this ditch dug that streams, flows through the shantytown dwellings. In a place like that, if you lived there, imagine a guy you lived with, you grew up with. He stands up one day and announces to the people, I will deliver you. I will bring you hope. I, I will make a future for you. And maybe a few people are interested in what he has to say, but the, for the most part, the reaction is scoffing, laughter. <laughs> Who do you think you are? You're nobody just like me. People like us don't go out and change the world. Verse 3 sums up this attitude, and they took offense at him. Get off your pedestal, Jesus. You're just one of us, a Nazarene. Nazareth was a nothing little town. Scholars estimate that the town covered just 60 acres. In North Jersey, that's a lot of land. Anywhere else in the world, a, a town that's 60 acres is really nothing to sneeze at. Most of it, if not all of it, is on a steep hillside. It's not very usable in terms of farmland and grazing. It's never mentioned in the Old Testament. One estimate is that only 150 to 200 people lived there in Jesus' day. And in John's gospel, this is one little glimpse of Nazareth we get. When um, Philip tells his buddy Nathaniel, we have found the Messiah, and tells Nathaniel where he's from, Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? It had this reputation as a nothing little town. Does anyone ever make anything of themselves coming from nowhere? 
The answer these people know is, uh uh-uh. This offense isn't new. Back in chapter three, the religious leaders accused him of being possessed by Satan himself and his family thought he was out of his mind. Here, one of the questions is pretty cutting. Isn't this Mary's son? Because in a patriarchal society, especially the man was identified as the son of the father. He should have been, it should have been, isn't this Joseph's son? Is that the guy? But isn't this Mary's son has a deliberate little dig of a message underneath of it. The message is, we know where you're from. We know your mom Mary got pregnant way too early before that marriage. And in an honor-bound, family-based society, the label of illegitimate never went away, especially where everybody knows your name, where people have stories, they've seen your family, they were in school with you. Jesus does not escape this offense. He responds in verse four, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town among his relatives and in his own home. This is what the Apostle John wrote about Jesus, not about Nazareth particularly, but the world in general. The true light that, was, that gives light to everyone was coming into the world, John chapter 1. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. That's the offense God the Son experienced when the creator, the agent of creation of all things took upon himself human flesh and arrived to no welcome committee, but just the opposite, offense. Who are you? What do you have to say to us? So many in the Gospels fail to realize that they stand in the presence of the Messiah and King Himself who alone is worthy of worship. Be very careful. If you call yourself a, 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 call yourself a skeptic, be very careful against thinking that if only Jesus were to appear to you, you would believe. If, if only that demand, that condition were satisfied, you would have faith in Him. The gospel accounts are evidence that that is far from the case. The Lord of glory was in their midst, and they scoffed at him. It's also very easy to be religious, to do the right things, to be a moral person, to aim to live a good life, and fail to receive and recognize Jesus. You can know the Bible really well, but do you know intimately and experientially the one who is called in John's gospel, the Word himself, made flesh, who made his dwelling among us. What what does it mean to receive Jesus? That question is relevant to our celebration of the Lord's Supper in a few minutes for the first time in over four months. What does it mean to receive Jesus? We will receive him, those of us partaking, with physical uh, bread and wine, juice in this case, because they're pre-sealed. Receiving Jesus uh, is described in the same passage I read, the very next uh, verse. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How do you receive Jesus? You believe in his name. You believe that he alone is the one who has come 
to satisfy the justice of the Father that your sin deserves. You receive Jesus by believing that he alone is King and Messiah and is worthy of your entire life of devotion and service and worship. Last thought on this scene. Verse 5, Mark tells us, he could not do any miracles there. That's pretty deep stuff. Jesus could not do any miracles there. Why not? Did, did they have some kryptonite that sort of paralyzed Jesus, that shut down his powers? Far from it. Verse 6 explains, he was amazed at their lack of faith. This isn't Jesus' inability. This is Jesus' unwillingness. It's a choice he makes not to perform miracles. Why? It's not because he lacked compassion. It's not because he wanted to stick it to him. You're not going to receive me. I'm not going to do anything for you. It wasn't that at all. It's this. For Jesus to perform miracles in the face of disdain and rejection and ridicule and offense and unbelief, it would have only fed people's desire to accumulate gifts without recognizing the giver. Just give me what I want. I don't want anything to do with you. That, that would be offensive, that picture, right? Where are my Christmas presents? Without any sense of relationship, appreciation, affection within the family. They wouldn't mind a little help, these Nazarenes, as they lived life on their own terms rather than humble, dependent faith in the power of God. Jesus' healing was a foretaste of the coming kingdom of God. That's that's what he announces at the very beginning of Mark, right? The the coming of the kingdom of God was a sign to everyone that God was planning, he had been planning, and he was executing his plan to repair the fabric of the broken creation. All of the world, broken wide due to sin and its everywhere effects. Jesus refused to give them the sign miracles, when they were rejecting the greater reality behind the sign, the promise of God to make all things new. Last week, David pointed out that the, the word in the original Greek language of the New Testament for saving and healing is the same word. It's sozo. And very often, there, there's a very clearly one meaning over the other um, sometimes there's one, uh, a sense of one clear meaning over the other, but very often there's significant overlap in w- whether saving or healing are going on. And, and it makes sense because Jesus' healing ministry is needed because of the breakdown of the body, right? A, a man lame from birth, uh, unable to provide for himself, uh, unable to be a, a contributor to uh, society, and there's something broken down about his body, Jesus' healing ministry addresses that. That's not distinct. That's not separate. That's not a a totally different category, though, from Jesus' healing ministry, which is needed because the breakdown of the body is just one sign of the breakdown of the created order, which is caused by sin, which leads to spiritual and eternal death. Healing and saving go hand in hand. Healing... Uh, in, the, in the New Testament is just a, a taste, a, a foretaste, a, a down payment, we could say, on the fuller saving plan of God that will 
in the end, for all who place their faith in Jesus, make all things new. Yes, including broken bodies. Yes, including a corrupted, decaying world, environment that we live in. God will make all things new. That's his plan. And by the way, Jesus does heal some, verse 5, because of his deep compassion. That leads us secondly to some deeper thought about the offense of Jesus. It has deeper roots than silly childhood competitive comparisons. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is helpful. In that chapter, the Apostle Paul rebukes the church in Corinth because they have forgotten, or at least they're not living consistently with the reality of the message of the cross, which is an upside-down and backwards reality. It's not irrelevant that Jesus was born to a teenage girl out of wedlock in a nothing little town called Bethlehem, or that he grew up in an even more obscure village called Nazareth and at the end of his life died a criminal's death and refused to defend himself, refused to say words that could have gotten him out from under this. Weakness and folly throughout Jesus' life, according to the world. But the gospel announces good news to the world. Life comes through humility and death. And in that weakness, Jesus displays greatest power in defeating sin and death by walking out of the grave. That's the upside down and backwards reality of the message of the cross, a figure of speech that is, is uh, representative of the entire good news, the, the plan of God to save, to heal. The message of Christianity fundamentally is offensive to the pride of the human heart. It strikes at the, the root of self-sufficiency. Every other world religion puts it on your shoulders. It's up to you to do good and not to do evil, to choose wisely and not to choose foolishly. You do and you will gain glory. But Christianity says this, which is good news. You can't do. You can't do nearly enough. Is that hopeless? No, that's only half the gospel. But Christ has done, and he offers it to you as a gift to receive. Don't, don't forget, uh, Jesus' first words in this gospel were, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Repent. We said in the early weeks of looking at this gospel back in March, repent, it's not exactly good news. Repent, uh, admit my faults, tell people that I'm, I'm actually guilty somehow when in my heart I know I'm a good person and I have a peace about that. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever said that? Express those sentiments? I'm not a bad person. Jesus' good news begins with Repent. The offense of the gospel deepens when you understand that this offer of the gospel is free. It's free. Why, why would something free be offensive? 
First, listen to God's free invitation in Isaiah chapter 55. Come, all you are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. In John chapter 6, the crowd asked Jesus, what must we do to do the works God requires? Self-sufficiency, self-sufficiency, human pride. I want to do, I want to achieve glory for myself. Jesus answers this very simply. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. You can't do, but Christ has done. Ephesians 2, Paul emphasizes this. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Paul knows the, the instinct of the heart is to want to boast, is to want to gain credit, to have the, the track record, to, to, to show the report card or, or the progress, whatever it may be, and feel good about what I have done, but there's no payment for salvation. It's not possible. The price is too high. Instead, it's free. If you're reading through the, the Bible in a year, uh, recently you came across 2 Kings 5, and the story of Naaman. Naaman is a Syrian army commander. He's high up, but he has leprosy. He's got everything the world would want, uh, but he's got the skin condition that cannot be healed. He hears uh, that there's a prophet in Israel named Elisha that can heal, and so he brings a, a king's ransom. He's ready to pay top dollar, and he finds Elisha, but Elisha doesn't even come outside to greet him. He sends a message, go wash in the Jordan seven times. And what's Naaman's reaction? Ah, didn't know I needed to do that. No. He's offended. He's offended. Not only because the Jordan River is not exactly the cleanest river, but Naaman was ready to pay top dollar. He was ready to to, to hand over this fortune that the king of Assyria had enabled him to bring. Perhaps Naaman was ready to to conquer a nation, to prove himself worthy of receiving this gift from the prophet, the power of God. Instead, he's told pretty much to do nothing. He expects a show of power. Instead, he gets this ordinary, lowly instruction to do what anyone else could do. In his mind, something free, something not earned, something not costly, something so ordinary could not be valuable. Grace is so easily despised because the pride of the human heart wants to earn greatness, wants to achieve glory, wants to deserve status from hard work and sacrifice, and to be able to say, I did that. Jesus simply says, believe. Receive with open hands this gift that I long to give to you. Offense towards grace is when you're quick to jump to your friend's help when he's lost his job and he can't pay the bills. You write a check. You're glad to do that, but you stubbornly refuse when you are in need. 
That's the offense of grace. You freely cook a meal for somebody who has been sick for a few weeks and can't do that for themselves, but when you're sick, you're, you're fine. I'll manage. I'll drag my sick self out of bed and, and survive somehow on crackers and cheese. I, I don't need anything. What's the difference? Your giving is generosity in your mind. Your receiving makes you a charity case. You won't have that. You giving is generous. Glad to do that. You receiving is a charity case. Don't want that. The difference is that pride is so strong in the human heart that free grace is offensive. But this is the message that Jesus has come to announce. Good news. You could never do enough to earn salvation. Jesus says, I have done it for you. Receive it. Receive me, Jesus says, by faith. Lastly, the church on mission. Back to Mark chapter 6. In verse 7, it's time to send out the 12 apostles. They've lived with him. They've listened to him. They've watched him minister. Now it's their turn. And uh, the instructions are interesting. They're supposed to go with no money, no food, no extra set of clothes. And then that was not a crazy thought. That was actually possible because in ancient Eastern cultures, and even to to, to this day, to a large extent, hospitality was a sacred duty. And so the disciples could reasonably expect to be utterly dependent on the generosity of strangers. And in fact, Jesus makes that sort of a litmus test. If they receive you, stay there. If they don't, leave. That's the second set of instruction. When you're not welcomed, when you're not listened to, shake the dust off your feet and go. That that was a figure of speech because when pious Jews traveled to a foreign land, Gentile territory, Gentile dirt, the rabbis taught them that when they stepped back into the land of Israel, they should shake off every particle, figuratively speaking, to demonstrate that, that they were unclean and now they need to sort of purify themselves. Shake the dust off your feet. It's a statement about them and you don't want to be like that. What's Jesus saying here? Not to despise those who are unlike you at all, but if people reject you, disciples, they are rejecting me, and the consequences of that unbelief, that's on them. That's a symbol that you're saying, have it your way, and you go. Here's the mission in verses 12 and 13. Preach faith and repentance Right? Just says faith, uh, just says repent, but when you turn away from something, you, need, you have to turn to something. So faith and repentance always are two sides of the coin, right? The mission is this, preach faith and repentance and minister to physical needs. Preach words, engage in actions. Give people in these actions of healing a glimpse of God setting right what is wrong with the world. That will ultimately have to wait until the last day when God finishes renewing all things, but for now, give them a a little glimpse. Give them a foretaste, which is exactly what Jesus meant when he said the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. I am going to begin to demonstrate very tangibly to you what it means for your life and the world to be renewed as you trust in me.
the Creator, and the Savior. Any message to repent, let's touch on that one last time. Any message to repent both wounds and disrupts. They're not separate things, they go hand in hand. But, but they, it, it wounds, first of all, because if you repent, which is a turning away from sin, you are admitting how wrong you have been. You're admitting, this is the painful part, what a fool you've been in, in, in terms of thinking that what was leading to life was actually leading you to death. It's, it, it takes a, a, a hit to, the pri- to your pride to, to say, uh, I, I thought that was wise. It was actually the very opposite. It was folly itself that hurts pride. But the message of repentance also disturbs because you need to spiritually clean house. If you truly repent, turn away from this way and do a 180-degree change in your life, comfortable patterns of sin need to be disrupted and even torn down, burned up. The message of repentance both wounds and it disturbs, but the beauty of Jesus' mission is that there is a message and there's also mercy. The message of repentance tears down. The ministry of mercy rebuilds through these tastes of healing as the apostles make right, at least temporarily, what is so very wrong. Uh, Let's wrap up with uh, this thought. What is the relevance to the church today? Three things. Number one, the offense of the gospel and the cross, they go hand in hand, You cannot talk about the good news of Jesus without talking about the cross of Jesus. The offense of the gospel on the cross cannot be avoided. The real Jesus, the truth of what his death says about our sin, none of that is comfortable. It doesn't just slide into our lives like an add-on that's compatible with the system that we have in place naturally. No, the system needs to be overhauled and replaced with a Jesus system. The good news first upends and disrupts, and then it rebuilds and restores. Um, What's with that word, scandalon? When we read in verse 3, they took offense at Jesus, it's the Greek word skandalizo. And it's not appropriate to go with it to scandal because the English word scandal means something today that it may not have meant back then. But the scandalizo as a verb is related to the noun scandalon which was used to describe a building stone that was rejected because of its imperfections. It wasn't square enough, flat enough, true enough, plumb enough to be laid down as a foundation stone, and the master mason would look at it and say, scandal on, what do you do with it? It goes back in the heap. It's just a rock. Later in Mark chapter 12... Jesus quotes Psalm 118 and applies it to himself in the face of opposition that's going to build and build and build by the end of Mark's gospel. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. There it is. The message of the cross is this upside-down, backwards reality. It's not what you think. You're heading towards death, not life. And when you look at Jesus, who demonstrates folly and weakness throughout his life, He was born in a nothing town to a nobody teenage girl. When you look at him, you find majesty and glory 
and you tap into power. Isaiah prophesied of the coming Messiah in 53 verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their face. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. 800 years before Jesus arrived. And they took offense at him. We could say it's fulfillment of prophecy. But two verses later, Isaiah says, his wounds bring our healing. Upside down and backwards. What's the relevance to the church today? The offense of the gospel on the cross can't be avoided. Secondly, if people are offended at God the Son himself, the true king, how do we expect anything different for us as followers of Christ? Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 20, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Churchgoers, if you experience no opposition as you live life following this Jesus, this Messiah, if you never come across scorn and rejection and disdain and offense, if you fit very comfortably and compatibly with the systems of the world where you live, work, and play, you are either living in a Christian ghetto, insulated from the world because all you hang out with and all you listen to is Christian this and Christian that, or you're not living an authentically biblical, Christ-honoring Christian life. It might be a mix of both. Paul writes to Timothy, not up here, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Here in America, it's not likely you're going to be thrown in jail for coming to church. We don't have to do this in secret. But everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted to some extent. Perhaps that's cause for self-examination if you feel so compatible with the systems of the world. Last thought, the church on mission. The church is called to proclaim the message and to demonstrate mercy. The first will be offensive, the message of the cross. It will be offensive. You cannot clean it up enough so that it is tasteful, easy to digest by the system of the world, which is under the influence of Satan. That message will be exclusive. The Scriptures say this, not us bigoted Christians, or so, uh, so we may be accused of, that, uh, that Jesus alone provides the path to eternal life, that Jesus alone enables sinners to be forgiven and to live forever, to be rescued from death. That message will involve shaking the dust off your feet. Just be careful that it's not filled with your self-righteousness, but is seasoned with grief and compassion that those around you are offended at Jesus, not at you. You and I are just the instruments. We're the mouthpiece. They reject you. They're rejecting Him. The second, demonstrating mercy, involves nevertheless, despite the offensive message, loving intensely and serving and caring sacrificially. 
We don't do one without the other. Neither one on its own is the fullness of the proclaiming of the good news. It wasn't for Jesus. It's not for us today as the church. And so we are called to as the church to bring foretastes of healing by praying for the sick, laying hands on them and anointing them. And if God would choose his power to descend upon them by feeding the poor, food drive, Star of Hope Ministry is still packing bags and bags week after week. Werner's going to give us an update this coming Thursday in the Voice of Grace. And by defending and fighting for the oppressed, you don't know any? Go looking. They're all around. You don't know what to do? Educate yourself. All of which points to the righteous and just King who has come to make all things new and is coming again to finish His work of renewal. Let's pray. God, this ministry of Jesus is fascinating when we peek in on it. Let it not just be a lesson. Let it not be a study of curiosity intellectually. Let it drive us on mission. Cause us first to self-examine. Do I receive Jesus or take offense at him? Do I receive him by believing in his name, by recognizing that he alone has all that I need? Lord, cause that self-examination to be present now as we move to the table of the Lord and celebrate the sacrament, we pray, that Jesus would be exalted, that we, your people, would be built up, that the lost would be found. Amen.